When God designed the family as the foundation of culture, He did not leave its construction to chance. God revealed the blueprint clearly and convincingly. Those who listen to His voice and build according to the plan will enjoy a healthy family that creates other healthy families. It's great to see you, Providence family. I hope you've had a great week, and if you're a guest with us, uh, welcome. We're thrilled that you've joined us. We always know that it's a great honor of ours when you do, and so thank you for being here today. If you brought with you today a Bible, if you want to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then we're also going to lean on Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, but most of our time will be in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Um, It is really good to see you. Uh, We're in a a series on the family, and it's really important that that we keep remembering is that God created the family. He's the one who thought it up, and he's the one who actually created and chose. uh, He selected specific building blocks that when those blocks are stacked on top of each other, it gives the family health and and and, and a strong foundation, but it also allows that family to actually perpetuate healthy families for future generations to come. So over the last several weeks, we've looked at the fact that God created us male and female. And then we looked at singleness. And then last week, we looked at marriage. And uh, here we're on sex. This is the fourth one. It's on sex. If you uh, are, um, are new or surprised at that, um, that's what we're going to do today. Okay. And so, uh, and then next week, uh, uh, moms, then the following week, uh, fatherhood, and then We're going to end with childhood, and the intent when we finish is that our desire is that our children and and the future generations of people at Providence, these little ones, as they look at all of us, as they look at men and women, as they look at our singles, as they look at marriage, as they look at fathers and mothers, is that it would inspire them to say, man, that's a trade up and not a trade down. And so I want to emulate what I see, and in doing so, uh, by God's grace, that future families uh, that are really, really healthy would be birthed in years to come. So I know that there's a lot of kids here. I also know there's a lot of people. Anytime you uh, are on this topic of uh, sexuality, um, one that may not agree, but then second is that it may be that uh, that uh, that you're hurt by by this. It may be that you're in a sin pattern right now and you just cannot get out of it, and so you're highly sensitive to it. It may be that somebody hurts you in this way at some point in your life. And so I promise that I'm going to be careful, I'm going to be biblical, and I'm going to be hopeful. That's at least my intent. I'm about to pray, okay? And so if, um, if this is a surprise to you, what we're doing, or if you have kids and you're uncertain, you don't know who I am yet, you don't trust me, and if you need an exit route, okay, this is the time to do it. I'm going to pray, we're going to all have our heads bowed, and and uh, the, there's doors in the back, uh, but I hope that you'll stay. I think it'll be important for you as well as for your families. And so if you would, let's bow. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We need you, and we need your help in this area of our life. You're the one who created sexuality, and so we come to you, the author, the engineer. Um, you are our creator, and we acknowledge that. You have authority as creator, and we yield to that. And we do so gladly, knowing that you are so committed to our good. So I pray that you would speak through weakness and that you would give clarity to our life. I pray for those that are broken down, 
in their heart either by pain of being hurt in this area or maybe by guilt in giving themselves over to this area. God, I pray that you would, um, you would give grace. Even as we look forward at the end of our time to take the Lord's Supper and to remember what you did, what you may have made available to us by dying for us and rising from the dead. And so we look to you. Would you help? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So why a message on sexuality in the middle of the family? Uh, well, I think there's three reasons. The first is this, is that God is the one who created sex. And we, as the people of God, uh, have with us in a Bible uh, the very words of God. And so God creates it. He instructs it. He places his instructions within the scriptures. And then it's important for us to want to hear from him, his perspective of why he did this. The second reason um, is really near to that. And that is the fact is that you and I, we all live in a sexually charged culture. Every single one of us and every single one of our children are exposed and that exposure is unavoidable. In fact, if you're waiting as a parent for that opportune moment where you're absolutely convinced that they're now ready to hear, you will be second place. Someone else will beat you to that conversation and what you need to do. And, I, and so I urge you as parents, I, 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 like if you have young children, I just know in my life, I had to do it sooner than I ever thought because there's more exposure than I ever imagined. And sadly, though, our, as our culture, and of course we live in it, we know it, right? It, is, is that it feels like that, that just sensuality sort of drops off of every single leaf in our culture, almost like a leaf that's unable to hold its morning dew. It's just, it just drops everywhere. And one of the saddest realities is how the church with the scriptures, with the word of God, has responded to the obsession. And that is by minimizing the significance and the goodness of the gift by either silence or shame. And so if we played a game where I just said, now, don't yell out, okay? But if we play the game where I say, say I'm going to say a word, and the very first thing that just pops up in your mind, I just want you to say it out loud, right? And I say, you know, podium or shirt. If I said sex in most churches with a Bible, and I just said, what's the first word that associates in your mind with that? I believe it would be startlingly high how many people would say sin. Weight. Dirty. Abuse. Be something less than worship. Sanctification. Beauty. Love. Innocence. Justification. And this is really sad because when the Bible plays word association games and God chooses his word, words that are synonymous with what he what what his heart thinks when that's the very words that actually come out. And it's interesting that for many of us, we just we, like like the nobility of it and it being in a private matter. Sometimes it makes us think that we should never talk about it. And yet it's God who created it. He's the one who created sex and pleasure. And it's important for us to recognize that Satan has never created a pleasure. He's only urged us to take God created pleasures at times and in ways that are forbidden. Whenever you're dealing with pleasure, you're dealing with a playground that God created. And so we want to trust him with it and recognize that with everything that we see and everything that we feel all around us is that we want to lean into God and say, God, would you help us with this area of our life? We know that it's there. We recognize that it's there. And then the third thing and the third reason is this is because many people think that their sin today won't affect tomorrow. 
And we're passionate about healthy families, not only today, but for tomorrow. There's a lot of people who think it doesn't matter what I do right now. It doesn't matter what ingredients I stir into the bowl. It's not going to reappear in the cake. And that's simply not the case. You see, there's a lot of people who say, what's the big deal? We're adults. We can do what we want. I can see what I want. It's only affecting me. And the big deal is threefold. The big deal is that the Bible says that God is grieved when his gift is misused. It's a big deal because seeds that we plant today sprout tomorrow. And it's a big deal because 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 actually says, abstain from the lust of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Many of us, we treat our soul like the whack-a-mole game, right? Where the little thing pops up through the hole and we take the hammer and we knock it on the head. And this is what he's saying, is that for many of us, we have a soul that raises up and cries out for God. And we say, God, I want you to satisfy my soul. I want you. I need peace. I need harmony. And what we do, we just smack it over the head. How do we do it? We give ourselves over to the lust of the flesh. It says that the lust of the flesh wage war on our soul. And so there's many of us right now, even as we have come into this room, and we have to operate with a soul that's less than 100% capacity. Because it's weary and it's exhausted and it's defiled. And there's many of us and then we even walk in these rooms and we wonder what's wrong with the worship team because we don't feel it this morning. And yet we're absolutely sexually awash with impurity because what we've done the rest of the week. And so these things matter to us. He knows that God created it. He knows we live in a world that's absolutely awash. And he knows that each and every single one of us, we struggle with these realities. And so Paul. Paul is a man who's saved by God. He goes into a city and, uh, and for three consecutive weeks, he begins to preach the gospel that Jesus died for their sin and rose from the dead. And all of a sudden, people start believing in Jesus Christ and a little church is formed. Thessalonica is the town. And so there's some people, though, that they're not too happy about this. And so they start a riot. Paul has to get out of town. But he's really passionate about what's going to happen to these young believers in the face of all this persecution in the city where that's where their home is. I can leave, but that's that's their home. That's where all their stuff is at. That's where their people are at. And so he sends somebody to go and check on their faith. And this man named Timothy comes back to him and he says, you're not going to believe it. They're doing amazing. They're doing so fantastic. And so Paul goes, I've got to write them. And first Thessalonians is the letter that he wrote back to this church. It's a letter of commendation. And he finally gets to the end. And he says, now there's some things I know that you're dealing with. I know that you live in a sexually charged culture there in your city as well. And this is what he says to him in chapter four, starting in verse one. He says, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, have you ever loved someone so much that you find yourself defending their interest to other people who do not understand their heart? This happens frequently in parenting. My wife says something to the boys 
They get up tight. I show up a little bit later and I feel like I have to go do a little bit of controlling of the damage. And so I go to the boys and I say, guys, you don't understand. This is mom's perspective. This is her interest. This is what's going on in her life. And, and, and I love you guys, but I love her more. Right. And so the fact is, you have to yield to her in this way. Affection and love for my wife leads me to defend some of the things that she has said, some of the instructions she's given to people who don't quite understand what her interests are. And this is exactly what Paul does. And who he's defending is God. He knows what God has created. He's read the Old Testament. He knows Genesis 1 and 2. He knows that God created sexuality. He knows why he did it, because he wrote it down. He sees God's design, and so he runs in to defend. And we have to ask the question, why would Paul be so defensive about something like this on God's behalf? And I believe there's three reasons. The first is because God created our sexuality to point to him, to point to him. He's the one who created us as sexual beings with the ability to reproduce, the ability to experience pleasure in sexuality. And so Paul begins and he says, look, I'm asking you and I'm urging you right, to walk in a way that pleases God. And then he gets to verse three and he says that this is the will of God. You do this and it pleases God. And then he gets to the end in verse eight and he says, look, and if you disregard this, you're not just disregarding things that I might say. You're disregarding God himself. And then is the final anchor to convince them that that would be a foolish thing. He says, and don't you see the generosity of God? He's given you his spirit. This is not a miser. This is not a Scrooge who's, who's, who's trying to just withhold something that's pleasant. This is the same God who gave his son to die on a cross and rise from the dead. And once you believe in him, he sends his spirit to live inside of you, to comfort you, to encourage you, to instruct you, to help you understand the scriptures. And so he says, look, he goes, I'm, I'm pleading with you on behalf of God. Don't disregard what he has for us here. And etched upon his heart, I believe, is, God's, is, is Paul's understanding of God's pleasure in how he created this thing. And so to understand that, we need to go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, and we start in verse 28. And there in verse 28, he says, after he creates Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so he says, I want you to have children. And sexuality, right, is the means to have children. But then what's interesting is then he gives us chapter 2. And in chapter two, what we find is this is it's the sixth day that we read about in chapter one. And he and he sort of just kind of zooms in on it so that we can really see and understand how he did this. And so he backs up and he goes, all right, now this is how he did it. This is amazing. He says, the first thing he did is he creates Adam. He looks at Adam and he goes, look, he goes, I, want, I have some work for you to do. I want you to be a faithful steward of the earth. You can eat of all of this. Everything's for you. You may surely eat of everything except for this one of you. See, this one of you just don't. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. And by the way, you know what? You're alone. You don't know you're alone. So I'm going to help you know you're alone. So he reveals his need to him. And eventually he gives Eve. He creates Eve. Now there's two of them. And now all of a sudden God says, all right, it's wedding time. Genesis chapter two, verse 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so God is the creator of these things. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, also wrote Colossians. And there he says this. He says, all things were created through him and for him. And that would include sexuality. All things. All things. You see, everything. 
including sexuality, was created to lean up against the wall, like a ladder that leans up against the wall. Even sexuality was created for a wall. Without a wall, what happens to the ladder? The ladder falls to the ground. In any area of your life, doesn't matter what it is, if you separate it from the stability of God himself, it loses its purpose and its power, and whatever it is, it falls to the ground, including our sexuality. God tells us in these two verses, back in Genesis, he says, look, God created sex as an expression, as an expression of love, commitment to each other in marriage and as a means to have children. But providence, neither of these two purposes terminates or culminates with us. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to do this so that you have children, so that you have somebody to take care of you when you get older. No, what's the ultimate purpose of children? They're, create, they're, they're made in the image of God. They're image bearers. To do what? To glorify God. He's creating future worshipers, future inhabitants of heaven. It all culminates in his glory. What about marriage itself? Last week we looked at marriage was created in order to display the relationship between Christ and the church so that when salvation was made available to us, that we have something on the earth in order to, to put it on display, to say, look, you can be rescued. So even marriage points to the glory of God. What about pleasure? You know, God could have made sex to not be pleasurable. You realize that. He could have done anything he wanted. Like, he, he's starting with nothing. He can do anything he wants. And he made sexuality to be pleasurable. Why would he do that? Well, even pleasure doesn't terminate in us. I want you to think about why he would do this. You see, when God in particular in the Old Testament, but it's also in the New Testament as well. When he looks upon the earth and he's looking for an illustration, he's looking for something that we experience from human experience. He's saying, you know what, what all do you experience? And he's looking for something, something that would, that would illustrate, something that would be capable to illustrate the thrill of being near him and being in a relationship with him. You know what he oftentimes chooses as the illustration? He chooses the love and sexual fidelity of a husband and wife. You can read of this in Ezekiel 16, where he literally describes the, his relationship with people who are near him and who love him. And he talks about it, and the metaphor is sexuality in marriage. You see, it's in marriage. It's in this way that there's warmth and depth and security and love and affection and closeness and nearness. And so here's God and he's saying, do you know what it's like to be near me, to be reconciled in a relationship with me, to to actually part with sin, to repent and to draw near to me and to be able to experience all the peace and harmony and love and security that I have available for you? He looks around, he goes, it's sort of like this. It culminates with him. And you know what's tragic is that when God looks for a human experience on the earth that's capable of illustrating the horror of rejecting him, the horror of walking away from him, do you know what he frequently chooses? He he uses the pain of adultery. The pain of being left. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 20 says, Like a woman faithless to her lover, even so you have been faithless to me. And so one reason that God created us with sexual impulse is to give us a category that's strong enough to describe the goodness of being near God and the devastation of being far from God. And so God, in his grace, he creates 
even sexuality, to point to him. The second thing of why I think he's so defensive is because he knows that God rescues our sexuality to glorify him. And this is where we really need to camp out a little bit in these first two chapters of the Bible. You see, he tells us, be fruitful, multiply. And then he comes and he says, look, you can eat of all of this. Surely you may eat of all of this, but just don't eat of this. Don't eat of this tree. And then all of a sudden they're married. They become one flesh. Verse 25 says that they're naked and they felt no shame. And then you get to chapter three. And what happens in chapter three is Satan comes with temptation and they fall. He comes and he says, did God actually say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? God emphasizes his generosity and Satan makes him look like a Scrooge. He withholds his best from you. And he, they keep conversing and finally she says, look, he said, if we eat of this tree over here, we're going to die. And he says, surely you're not going to die. He's just withholding his best from you. So finally, in verse six, it says that they succumbed to it. They ate in verse seven. It says, and then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a tragic, utterly tragic thing. And then what takes place is God comes and he goes, okay, to the man, to woman, and to Satan, he begins to give out curses because of this rebellion. And he finally, he finishes, and then there's a verse, and it's verse 21, and God says, now this is what I'm going to do to help you right now. Verse 21 says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So what's happening here? Well, for a very, very brief period of time, the garden was a place of total peace. It's unimaginable to us who know insecurity and fear and shame to think of being totally naked in front of everybody who's alive in the world and feeling absolutely no shame whatsoever. But that's exactly what it was like. And then suddenly, God's generosity wasn't enough and they ate what was forbidden. And suddenly, sin shattered their innocence. It says that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And suddenly this wave of insecurity washed over them. And for the first time, nakedness felt vulnerable. You know, it still does. Have you ever noticed this? Let me just give you a story. This may have never happened to you. Honestly, it's never happened to me, but all of us can identify with it. Let's just say that you're on a little, uh, little family retreat, okay? A marriage retreat. You're, you're all married, right? And so you're with your spouse. Let's just say there's five families and there's three bathrooms. And so you got to share bathrooms, okay? You come in from the beach and you've had a great day and you think it's your wife in the shower in this, in this bathroom. And so you, you know, you kind of knock and it sounds like her. And so you open it up and you know, you're brushing your teeth. Well, about that time you open the door and, and at the, at the, at the very much, not your wife. And all of a sudden she's got her towel and she takes, she takes that um, shower curtain and opens it up and there she is in all of her glory. And, and what, what happens in that moment right there? Okay. This is not your wife. You're not supposed to be in there, but it's total accident. Okay. There's innocence in why it's happening. And yet there's this, now there's this, there's this moment that's unforgettable, okay? What, what happens? Well, the person who walks in, they instinctively, no one's ever taught them to do this, they instinctively think, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. They bow their head, they put their head in, and they try to get out in order to minimize the shame for the other person. They know they're not supposed to be there. They don't just sit there and, hey, what's going on? I'm just brushing my teeth, you know? That's not, that's not how it happens, right? And the person who's naked and who's totally been exposed, right, she or he, if it's a he, uh, uh, grabs a towel and, or, or, or the shower curtain, wraps up and screams and, and right, like this moment, right? But look, 
Nobody teaches us to do this. What, like if you've got a three-year-old, you don't sit down and say, now look, in 30 years when you're on a marriage retreat, if this happens, this is what you do, right? If you walk in, you go, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. No, nobody teaches us. And yet instinctively, we all have patterns that feel right in that moment. And this is exactly what we find right here in Adam and Eve. So what was their solution to all this? Well, it was clothes. But they didn't have fabrics. What'd they do? They sewed some leaves together. And this is how God finds them. Cowering alone in isolation in a bush and clothed. So what was God's solution? God's solution was to give them better clothes. Enduring clothes. Clothes made out of skin. You see, clothes are a witness to the innocence that we've lost. Clothes are not meant to make people think about what's under them. They're meant to confess what's not, and that is innocence. Did you know that every one of us is clothed today, and the reason is because you're publicly confessing your sin to other people? It would feel wrong, wouldn't it? If you just like woke up right now, and you were totally naked in this room at this moment, right now you're the only one, you'd think, I wouldn't want that to happen. I wouldn't want that to happen either to you, right? And yet, what, what, he's, what he's saying here is, is that we all came dressed And the reason is because we know that it would feel vulnerable. We would feel shameful. We would feel fearful. We would feel insecure if we were naked. We also know that every other person here is a sinner. And so they could use what they now know to shame me. No one's now perfectly safe anymore. And so God gives them clothes. Now, what's the hope in all this? I want you to just... Back up for a second and just think of what's happening now. God says, be fruitful, multiply. He says, husband and wife, one flesh, naked and no shame. I made sexuality. But the fitting thing now, because of a lack of innocence, is clothing. You should cover up. So how does God rescue sexuality so that we can do exactly what he said that we should be doing in order to glorify him? How do we do this? And the answer is Jesus. You see, the garments of skin required a blood sacrifice. An animal had to die, which was a pointer to a greater sacrifice that would be coming. It's first talked about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he curses Satan. and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is he saying? I'm going to send a rescuer to this earth and you're going to strike at his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to die on a cross for all the sin of humanity. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise from the dead. And everyone who believes in him, he's going to take away all their sin and he's going to give them his unparalleled perfect righteousness. He's going to justify them. He's going to declare them innocent. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 says, this is what it's like for those who are in Christ, who are believing in Jesus Christ. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? For it is God who justifies. So God looks at us, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, and in all of our failure and all of our insecurity, he says, I see you. I know you. I know everything about you. I accept you and I'll never shame you. And the reason is because I have made you righteous in my son. Now, what is marriage? Marriage is an institution that God created to display this vertical relationship between God and his people and to transfer it horizontally between a husband and a wife. And so what we're finding within the scriptures is that God ordains that we display the provisions that are available in Christ in the marriage. 
So just as God comes in, he says, I know you, I see you, everything about you, I accept you, and I'll never shame you. We have the privilege in the context of a covenant of marriage designed to display this redemption, to look at our spouse and say, I see you, I know you, I'll never shame you, I accept you. And the reason is because God has made you innocent. You see, there's a lot of people who would ask, well, I've been single my whole life. I'm about to get married. How do I switch so that it's been no my whole life and all of a sudden it's yes on a wedding night? There's only one way you can do that. And here it is. Faith in God's gift of justification. Sexuality within a marriage is an expression of innocence. We're saying God has done this. God has made us innocent again and so we can now Practice the innocence that we received with each other. And so he's defensive because he created, he rescued. And the third thing is he's instructed. God instructs our sexuality in order to protect us. And you, this is what you find in verse three. It says, it's his will we be sanctified. That word is mean holy. It means to be set apart. And you notice that what he does then is he says, there's three different ways that he sanctifies us. He says that you, and he says that you Three different times. And so we want to look at each and every one of these. The first is this. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality. From immorality. Now, the New Testament in Matthew 5, 1 Corinthians 6, and Romans 1 unpacks immorality to include adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and lust. And you need to understand that God agrees that every single person is born with desires that diverge from God's plan. Whether you have same-sex longings or whether you have multiple people longings of one sex, it's still a divergence from God's plan. And the fact is, is that every single one of us are born with this. That's why every single one of us, like nobody has ever had perfect desires when it's come comes to sexuality. And that's why even if you are attracted, if you're a man and you are attracted to a woman, which is the biblical norm, isn't it true that you were, you've grown up and you lived your life and one was never enough? Which is why you've looked at more than one. And so what does God do? He comes to us and he says, look, I love you so much. Let me give you an instruction. So 1 Corinthians 6, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee is an interesting word. We never flee with class. Okay? We never saunter out of a burning room. This is very nice. I, you know, no, it's we're, we're, like chairs are falling over because we're trying to get out. There's disruption. And this is what he's saying. Flee. And then he tells us why. He goes, because when you sin in this way, He goes, it's not that this is the worst sin. He goes, it's just the most unique. Because this is a sin that actually originates in the body and then it hurts the body. And for example, you just look at pornography. Pornography is when we look at people without seeing a soul. So we objectify people. We make ourselves God and we say that you are here for the purpose of my gratification. Selfishness is the core And then what it does is it reshapes even our understanding of what is beautiful. It's where people that become absolutely absorbed in pornography, they begin thinking that a real body, one body, or my spouse's body 
simply isn't good enough. And so he says, you got to flee it. It's going to hurt you. Then he says the second thing. He goes, it's his will that we be sanctified, that you control your body in holiness and honor. <laughs> you see, providence, I know it's true of me and I know it's true of you, is that we have everything within us that's necessary to ruin every good thing in our life in about five minutes. It's all there. And so he says, through self-control, don't wreck holiness and honor. Sometimes I think it's important for us to imagine what's at stake if we actually did this, if we did sin. For myself, if I was ever to be unfaithful to Tabitha, I'd start shuddering over the fact of everything that would be shaken in my life. I would absolutely devastate my wife, who loves me. I would absolutely devastate my three sons and confuse them deeply. I would grieve my family, my extended family, my parents. I would grieve you, my church family. And most of all, one day I would look at Jesus in the face and have to explain why after all the beauty that he has placed in my life, I had to have more. And so he says, control your body in holiness and honor. And then the third thing he says, we should be sanctified for his pleasure that you not wrong your brother in this, in this way. So our society wants us to believe that sex is simply physical, like food. You get hungry, you eat. You have this appetite, you have sex. But if that's the case, then why is it that sexual abuse is reported far less often than all other forms of abuse? It's reported less often because there's more shame. It's not just physical. Why is it that adultery is so devastating? Why is it that when a child is sexually molested, that it carries with him for longer periods of time? Why? You see, people are important enough to protect. People's future marriage is important enough to protect. Your future marriage, if you're not married, it's important enough to protect. And God speaks all of these things to us not to deny what is pleasant, but to protect what is precious. So before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to give you three applications for us as a church family. The first is this, is as a church family, let's hold fast to God's word. I realize that the things that I've said, that there's many things that I've said that maybe some of you simply do not agree with. I absolutely know for certain that there's many people in our culture that do not believe and agree with things that I've said. There's been a lot of people that haven't agreed with things that I've said over the last three weeks either, right? And so that's just the reality. But I want you to think of a train where the engine is the word of God and every car that stacks up behind that engine is a different aspect of our life. And what you find in people's lives is this, is that every time... People deny the word of God authority and allow it to run first on the track of their life. Every other train car in time eventually ends up in a ditch. And so Providence, we are going to continue to humbly rest and hold fast to the integrity and the authority of the word of God. The second thing is let's pursue Christ with all of our heart. You notice in verse 5, that knowing God is the difference between being at the mercy of lust and lust being at the mercy of God. And the only cure to impurity is to find something sweeter than impurity. You see, what you find is that little souls give little lust great power. When we have a little soul that's not satisfied with a great treasure, we still look for another treasure that's not so great, but we make it and give it great power. You see, if we treated something else the same way that we treat sexuality, we would see the folly of exactly what we're doing. So let's do that just for a moment. What if instead of sex, America had this obsession with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, okay? 
just had to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? And we would put sandwiches on top of car hoods, right, to sell more cars, right? And we'd have calendars, right? And January would be grape jelly, and, and February would be strawberry jelly. And, and then just naturally, we'd say, you know, like, movies, are, they're more populated if they're rated R. So let's just throw in a few sandwiches in the middle of the movie just to, just to raise the rating so that more people will feel like that this is a really important movie to go and see. And what if we just like, we'd, we'd, we'd tune in and watch people make a sandwich. Look, I'm spreading peanut butter. Is this nice? Is this nice? And oh, look, and some jelly. And like all of us, we, like we look at that and we think, that's the, that's the dumbest thing in the world. In fact, you might be thinking, Brian, that, that may be your worst illustration yet. That, that was it. You won't forget it though. It's a, it's a created thing. Just as sex is a created thing. And my point is simply this, is that if our heart is not at rest in Christ, we will look for substitutes and then make those substitutes greater and bigger than life. And so give yourself to knowing Christ and sex will find its God-given place in your life. When those impulses come, don't grieve them. God gave them in order to point to him. So consecrate them and ask God for self-control. And the last thing is let's seek forgiveness in Jesus. I know that some of you feel absolutely overwhelmed because you feel guilty or you feel trapped. And I want you to know, friends, that the blood of Jesus Christ can make you purer than before you sin, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can actually make your soul more whole than before you fell. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died so that his blood could wash away the deepest sin, and God resurrected him from the dead, showing that he can put anything back together that's been broken by sin. But we must believe in him. And as a church family, God has given us and every other church in the world the opportunity to remember this amazing gift, this amazing grace, and it's the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do that now. So for those that will be serving us, if you want to head to the back at this point in time, it consists of bread and cup, which is symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us the night that he was betrayed, this is why you do this, is to remember me, to remember what I've done. So we want to do that. We want to remember what God has done through Jesus Christ to rescue us in every part of our life. But he also tells us that he wants us to do it when we gather as a church family. And the reason is so that we can proclaim our belief and our hope in Jesus Christ, even though every single one of us come to the table defiled. Every one of us are sinners, myself included. And so what the Bible tells us is this, is that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can take this and we welcome you too. But if you don't, the Bible actually instructs that if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that to take it is to treasure it. And so he encourages you not to take it. And so we would just follow the Bible's words and just say, would you respectively let them pass? We would love to talk with you, though, about Christ. And maybe next time that you, you can take it. Okay, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. And I pray that you would help us to remember, to remember the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that gives us hope. And God, I pray that as we are served, that you would remind us of any sin in our life that we need to confess so that we can take it with a clear conscience. We thank you for your mercy in our life. We thank you for your kindness to each and every one of us. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.